I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The very first time Sasha Velour watched the show RuPaul's Drag Race, she was living in Russia and had to download the show illegally. She was there on a Fulbright scholarship to study political art, but also kind of sowing the seeds for her own future. If her name is familiar, it's because Sasha Velour went on to win season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race. And that is just one tiny story of about a hundred fascinating stories that you are going to hear from Sasha in her conversation with Tom Power about her latest book. It weaves drag history together with her own life story. Plus, the artist Rev will introduce you to a new song from her debut album and talk about the transformative power of dance music. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Whether or not you know anything about the art of drag, and it really is an amazing art, I'm willing to bet that you will find something that grabs you in Sasha Velour's latest book. It's called The Big Reveal, an illustrated manifesto of drag. It weaves in and out of memoir, queer history, critical theory, visual art, and graphic novel. Sasha Velour won season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race. Her lip sync on that finale, you might have seen it. It went totally viral. And this is one way you know you've made something culturally relevant. It was actually parodied on SNL two years later. Sasha created and hosted the acclaimed New York City drag show Nightgowns. She's also toured over 80 theaters with her drag show Smoke and Mirrors. She spoke with Tom Power back when her book first came out, and she was touring her live show called The Big Reveal. She will be touring that show again starting in December, and she's just been announced as one of the co-hosts for season four of We're Here on HBO. So we thought it was about time to revisit Tom's conversation with Sasha Velour. How are you? I'm fantastic. Tom thank Power, thank you for having me. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for coming in. Cool little studio here. Oh, I'm it's happy the, to be here. Oh my god, I'm happy. To, I'm happy. Speaking of iconic, th- thank you and thank you for. I mean, I feel a little underdressed here, but thank you for coming. And thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for doing that. Oh, this is you know part of the job. I part guess the, so. My uniform. Three three hours. Exactly three three hours, and then I clean up after myself. <laughs> I'm a responsible drag queen. Um, well, I'm I'm happy to have you here. There's, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I want to sort of like, because in, in some ways the book is about your own personal history. In some way, the book is about the history of drag. It's sort of again like uh, about how we how we are taught about drag, what we know and what we don't know about drag. I want to start with you. C- can you tell me a little bit um, about your grandmother as a grandma Dina? Yes, and she grandma. was the first person to put you in, in drag. Can you tell me Absolutely. that story? I think she might have been the first drag queen I met, too. She was just a really extravagant person who loved wearing sequins and would put on makeup every day and would style her hair. And the rest of my family were kind of hippies who just went more natural. But I felt this gravitational pull to elevated and artificial glamour for some reason. And she became like she ushered me into that world, helped me dress up in her clothes, taught me the art of the reveal, I suppose. I began reflecting on the ways that she helped me put on little shows just in her condominium for my grandfather, who was never a very willing participant, but (laughs) indulged anyways. And I didn't realize at the time how rare that was for 
someone to, without saying, oh, you're gay or oh, you're queer or whatever, just say, oh, you, you like to perform, you like to dress up, let me help you. This is so much fun and you should have fun with life. And it was your other grandmother. I think you, you describe her as like the, the walking internet. <laughs> yeah. Or like the internet before the she internet. She knew everything. My grandma Jo, my mom's mom, um, was a reference librarian from Michigan. And she taught me the word drag. <laughs> <laughs> she taught you. The, what do you remember from about that? I remember she had, I mean, she always was teaching me words and catchphrases. I didn't know if it was like a, a real word or something she had made up. But she had a picture in her album from her photo album of her brother uh, dressed up in drag for like, a community center event. He was a straight guy with a family, or mm -hmm. so that's as far as I know. Mm -hmm. um, but that made me, I think about that now because drag was something totally normal to this woman born in 1911 in the Midwest. Drag wasn't something shocking or perverse, it was something fun. I, I hope we can get people back to that place. I want to stay on your on your sort of trajectory here. Uh, tell me what goes through your mind when I mentioned the. the the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> um, oh, you, you've read this part of the book. <laughs> um, the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, I, I think Wizard of Oz was probably the first movie that my parents showed me. Helping the little lady along, are you, my fine gentleman? Well, stay away from her. Or I'll stuff a mattress with you. Here, Scarecrow. Want to play ball? <laughs> And I guess I like screamed in terror at the Wicked Witch of the West and then asked to keep rewatching this segment because maybe the terror was a little bit of an attraction to her otherworldly glamour. Um, I, I, I try to like describe her really overflowingly in the book and her like beautiful tendrils of hair, her long train. Like, yes, she's supposed to be this terrifying, menacing figure, but she is also really fantastic and she has a glamour to her. And I think, you know, maybe there's, there's some way that the way kids made fun of me for being a little different, for being a little extravagant, I didn't know that I was gay, but I think that was probably something a little bit beyond the traditional bounds of how a boy was supposed to act was right. already present. So I connected with this figure who was feared and misunderstood. I didn't connect with all the evil things she did, mm -hmm. but I wanted to dress like her. So after I recovered from the fact that she had thrown fireballs and was burning down <laughs> villages, I asked if I could start dressing up as her. And I wanted a big skirt that I could swish around, a big hat, a broomstick. And I started acting out of all the scenes, the one where she dies, <laughs> which really, I think, is like, I'm still that person who why loves you, these dark moments. Why that one of all, of all the ones? Because she disappears into the floor in a poof of steam. You cursed brat! Look what you've done! And I thought, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just wanted to, to have this reveal performance. So I would gather anyone who would watch, and I would give them a bucket. And I'd say, okay, now you throw, you mime throwing the bucket of water on me, and I'm going to do the witch's death monologue, basically. And I do the whole thing, the screaming, saying, I'm melting, I'm melting, oh, what a world, what a world. <laughs> <laughs> to think a little girl like you could... You know, yeah. destroy my beautiful wickedness. Yeah. And then I would shrink down to the ground, climb backwards out of whatever I was wearing, and run a run away. Not not a very good reveal performance, but <laughs> run away in my underwear. I love I, I love these parts of the book and, and and we'll come back to them later, but like I love these parts of the book because I feel like it's you going like, Oh, okay. 
Yes. Oh, okay. That's I see where I, I see where I came from now. I think the big reveal is realizing I've always been Sasha Valor. Yeah. It just took me a while to catch <laughs> up to it. <laughs> uh, another part of the book that I, I really loved is is uh, again how you talk about the history of drag. I mean, um, I didn't know that the like, just the the term drag. We're, we're not entirely sure where that term comes no, from. Everyone has a different story. Yeah, you know, even even the, sort of the popular ones, they're not necessarily sure. You do some really g- good research there. You you write about the first recorded performances of drag. You talk. I mean, we just talked about it briefly. How it was perceived at various points in history. What is something that might be surprising, maybe to you or maybe to me or, or to people listening to this that they might not know about drag that you uncovered in your research. I think I think it was the extent of the popularity that drag had in the 1920s. In New York, it was called the pansy craze, and everyone was going to drag balls. Um, it was kind of the birth of the modern nightclub, actually, was going to see drag performances and drag competitions in Harlem in like a largely black, queer scene. Um, and... And then, like, in the 1960s, even, figures like Danny LaRue from the UK became worldwide sensations. He's the first drag queen who appeared in Vogue. And I I think a lot of times, even I thought, this is something totally new. It's getting more and more popular. Yeah. That's not really the case. It gets popular, and then there's a conservative pushback every time. People become afraid of maybe more empowered or more free forms of gender and, and try to make it criminal, literally create laws that criminalize the freedom and force people into more traditional, I guess, gender roles. So you're, you're saying that this, this um, I think I would have been the same as you. I would have thought, I mean, this is my own ignorance. I would have thought, you know, I had seen the, what's the name of that documentary about the balls in, in, in New oh, York? Oh, Paris is Burning. Yeah, Paris is Burning. So yeah. I think I would have thought, what era was that? that That's was, the 80s. Yeah, I think I would have thought like, okay, the 70s and, and 80s, and then it gains yes. steam and it becomes through through drag race, which we're going to talk about later, becomes this massive thing. Right. And now, and then there's drag brunches, and then yeah, now it's reaching young people and small towns. And there's going to be this pushback against it. But you're right. saying that's that's happened always. It's happened before. Yeah, it happened in the 20s. It happened even at the turn of the century. People were dressing up in drag, um, and it, it does become popular. Does that make you feel less comforted or, or more comforted? It makes me feel more comforted. Really? Because it shows how natural it is, and it shows that. These things happen in waves. We don't have to, I mean, of course, we do have to fear what's happening to our spaces and, like, figure out ways to survive, even if the laws are changing to be more oppositional to the freedoms that maybe we've gotten used to. But I think there's an enduring love of queer people that the world has, an enduring acceptance of drag and dress-up and fluidity of gender And even if some people's voices become very loud and controversial, most people, I firmly believe, accept this as part of culture and as something wonderful. I'll tell you what's interesting about this is that, so I didn't tell you this when you came in, because I really wanted to, but I I didn't. (laughs) Um, I read uh, one of your dad's books. What? Oh, my goodness. Oh, he'll be so delighted. Can can you say who your dad is? Yeah, my dad is Professor Mark D. Steinberg, who's a... A historian of of the Russian Revolution, really, and of workers' histories. I don't know if I have a question related to this, but <laughs> I, I read. So I, be, I I went through this period. 
I'm still kind of in it where I became really obsessed with the Russian Revolution. And I read the Orlando Figgis book, The People's Tragedy. Oh, yeah. And then I read your one of your dad's books. I think it was The Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921. Yes. Um, and again, it's, it's, he's, he's a, someone who uh, tells the story of the revolution from the kind of the, the ground floor perspective, yeah. the, the workers' perspective, including like the art that workers made that they didn't know was art at the time. That, that, was, that was revolutionary. <laughs> yes, that is his specialty and something he instilled in me at an early age to look for art where people don't even want to see it themselves. I'm seeing a, you know, I'm seeing a connection, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That's so funny. I, he'll, he's going to listen to this and be really, really pleased. He's such a supporter of, of my drag. And I see the ways that his research, his, his interest in revolution, his focus on ordinary people's experience, or not just experience of world events, but contribution to the movement of culture and time, like that's shaped everything I do. And He's flattered me to say that my interest in drag has ignited a new window in his research. Is that so? He's studying like the queer underground now and its role in city life. So I feel like that's a little give back to each other. It must feel meaningful. It's amazing. I think, you know, to have a, a parent who's listening to what you have to say is like the well, that's very clear in the book that your parents, uh, both your, both in your mom and your dad, are supportive of you. Yeah. Like you know whether they're helping you put on you know put on plays or they're helping you get <laughs> costumes. What was the line? I think it was your mom says it at one point. Like where you weren't you, you weren't interested in much. <laughs> yeah. So when you were interested in something, we wanted to support you. <laughs> yeah, I was terribly indecisive and could never make up my mind as a child. Maybe there's some some fluidity and I could chalk, <laughs> chalk it up to that as well. Uh, I just wanted to be in between things. Uh, but but they knew me. I think that's that's the point. They knew me, and they just let me be myself. Do you ever take a moment and realize that maybe that was rare? Oh, absolutely. It's so rare. And even though I'm I'm not a parent myself, I wanna I wanna pay that forward. I wanna give that to all the drag performers that I bring to my shows. For example, I, I want I want to look at them and say you know, kind of like what you're doing for me right now to say, like, I see you and I just want you to take this opportunity to to share yourself with people. Because I know, like, from a family perspective, how much that empowered me and how rare that was. And to give that as in a community way or even in a creative, professional way means so much to people. It, it helps people. And that's such a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, I must admit, when I, re- when I was reading those parts of the stories about your parents, I mean, it's so sad to say, actually, in some ways. Yeah. I was reading it and going, oh, my God. I, I, I mean, I, I know people who, who, who participate in drag, and I know, you know, and I, for, I mean, almost exclusively. Yeah, maybe some of them, actually, I don't, not just in case they're listening, but, like, <laughs> I mean, virtually all of them we wouldn't have had the same support system. That, that did jump out to me. Right. Well, yeah, we hear what not having support does for yeah. queer people, how hard that is. But to hear what it can yeah. build, that's yeah. kind of the opposite side. It really it really proves how needed it is. Tell me about Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> Dracula is my first excuse to wear lipstick. So he's very <laughs> important to me. <laughs> I thought this is just the blood dripping down from my fangs as I smeared glossy red lipstick all over my mouth. What? So what, what happened? What, like, how, how did Dracula... How, well, I know the story, but tell, tell me the story. Oh, well, I didn't know what Dracula was when kids at school called me Dracula. I have really pale skin, really dark hair. Turns out my family is from Romania, Mm -hmm. a bunch of Romanian Jews who were, I don't know, maybe Dracula does actually have some anti-Semitic tropes. Right, okay, sure, 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 sure. sure. Um, (laughs) But uh, I I loved this character, this old world figure who comes and 
causes chaos in the modern in modern England from <laughs> Eastern Europe, and uh, yet again dies in a poof of smoke really dramatically. So these are the characters that immediately resonate with me. And I started dressing up for Halloween as Dracula. And it was it was my first experiment with makeup. Getting to put a pale foundation on, bright red lips, bushy eyebrows. You see, I'm still doing this exact makeup plot. How did it feel? It felt freeing to become Dracula. It felt like the thing I had been afraid I looked like, when I fully embraced it, I, I loved myself so much more as Dracula. I, like for this this thing that people had said to be mean to me, that I looked like a vampire, when I actually leaned in and embraced being looking like a vampire and realized just how fun it is to be over the top, to play with the idea of being scary, knowing that I'm not really, that, that brought joy. I think for people who are listening to this, they would think... Oh, that's the moment that Sasha's born. Oh, like that's the moment that oh, yeah. But like it, it actually goes on for a little while. Oh yeah, I this. wish I could have figured it out that quickly. You you were a Fulbright scholar. Yeah. Um. In you, and you traveled to to Russia. Yes, I did. In after college, it was still no drag yet, right? I was dressing up all the time, and I but I felt I had to keep it secret. I didn't know any drag queens out in the world except for RuPaul and Divine, and I feel like even to this day, I'm not, I'm not quite. Either of those paths, yeah, maybe some strange combination, but I, I didn't see a place for myself in that world. I just knew I loved wearing dresses and putting makeup on, but I felt I still felt a lot of shame about that shame I had learned in school from other kids, primarily, um, but a little bit fear of also of what my parents would say, which was even with all that support, even with all that support, yeah, because yeah. there's so much messaging that it's wrong, and I didn't want to disappoint them, yeah. so I didn't even want to tell them, yeah. Yeah, and, and you, you were a Fulbright scholar, so you traveled to, is it Moscow? I traveled to Moscow. I put together, I studied Russian inspired by my dad and my, gram, my grandma Dina, who was born in a Russian Yiddish speaking community. In, in, in Manchuria, right? In Manchuria, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, well, Manchuria, in China, yeah, what's yeah. now China. So, so when you're in Moscow, how, how are you feeling? Um, I had to be very closeted. Yeah, I would say. I still like had my fashion sense, and I think I read about it in the book, but someone once, like, stopped me on the street and, and addressed me as, as a girl because of how I was dressed. And I turned around and was like, oh, I'm happy to help you get directions to McDonald's or wherever. And she ran away. She gasped that I was not a girl and ran away screaming. It was a very, it's a Russia, the Russia that I went to was a very conservative, of course. Um, restrictive and very gendered place. And I, I was connecting with queer activists there. In it was the, a yeah. secret part of my Fulbright proposal because you have to get approval from the Russian government. So I presented it as a, a focus on political art that was available for free in the city. And I ended up talking to queer activists to find out what kind of protests they were doing, what kind of art they were making. They didn't really see it as art, <laughs> typical for, like, in my family's research. Yeah, given give, give what your dad was writing about. Yeah, yeah. I, I really saw the poetry, the protests, the signs, the essays they were making as art. Um, but really engaged, important art. And it made me want to make more queer art myself and speak to the inequalities and and create possibilities and imagine a better world for queer people through creativity. So connect the dots between that and so you, you come back to Illinois. Yes. And that's when you start participating in drag, right? Yeah. I, I did my first like lip sync performance to a Rihanna song in someone's communal Russian apartment <laughs> because I started watching Drag Race while I was in Russia. Right. 
illegally downloading episodes the first season. So we are down to two queens, Chanel, Rebecca. The time has come for you to lip sync for your life. And that was the first time I saw people who really played with gender and kind of androgynous drag, artistic drag. And I began to see that this thing I had always been doing would match up with the world of drag. And I, I read about Sylvia Rivera while I was in Russia as well, uh, one of the greatest activists, queer and trans activists, I think, of the 20th century, who called herself a drag queen, but she was also a trans woman, and created a home for home for people unhoused, queer and trans people, and interrupted pride protests to say you're not making enough space here for trans people, for cross-dressers or whatever, because these terms do keep changing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she was really my biggest inspiration to start doing drag. How, how did it go the first time? I went out in my hometown in the middle of the cornfields. I got dressed up in my mom's bathroom, and uh, she she and I had a little fight about how much mess I made, which is why, why I clean up after myself to this day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I went out to the club. I was so nervous. But immediately, something about when you're in drag, people feel open to, to talk to you. And they said, like, you look great. You're, you're doing such a good job. I didn't. Is the truth. <laughs> you know, you but know that, now. I know yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But just that encouragement, that's like, that's what, that's one of the things that's so radical is we just encourage each other. See, meet each other where we are and encourage each other. Yeah. And that love that we need so much, like, fuels something. And I, I ended up talking to the local drag host because there was a drag show happening that night at the gay bar and asking how I, how I could be a part of it. Now, um, I only talk about this as much as you, as you want to. Um, I was uh, struck by the way you write about your mom um, in, this, in this book. Again, as much as you want to here, but um, y- you were really candid in the book about the... I mean, we've been talking about the sort of social and political and um, I guess um, identity-based ways that um, drag made you feel more authentic to who you are. I was um, struck by how, and I had never read anything like this before, about how drag had had helped you with like an eating disorder. Yeah. And I was particularly struck by, so your mom is, she she gets sick. She gets gets diagnosed with cancer. and, And I love the way you write about that, that even just, I mean, I I don't want to give it away, but like, Helping your mom get a wig, yeah, you know, like drag helped you through. I can't, you know, drag helped you through that period of your life too. As much as you want to say, can you tell yeah. me more about that? Um, sure. I mean, as much as you want to. Yeah, I know. No, I'm gonna get emotional. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to ruin your makeup either. You know? <laughs> Thank you. I have a show tonight. <laughs> it it was just this moment of connection where she was she was really vulnerable, and I I was kind of going through a vulnerable time as well, and we we were able to talk about her experience of gender and her experience of beauty and the, the pressures to look a certain way as a woman in this world. And she was plenty curious about the drag that I was starting. I didn't share everything with her because I was still nervous, but I shared a little bit. And not all of it made sense to her as a feminist, as a woman. Yeah. Um, but I was more interested in soaking up what she was going through and learning about her own experiences because she was very, very glamorous to me, actually. Um, even though she had never been one for makeup or never never styled her hair or wore high heels, something about her experience of femininity was really inspiring to me. 
And the fact that she felt she lost her access to beauty as someone going through cancer just by losing her hair was devastating. Um, and I, I loved that drag had bald queens. It already was a thing. There were figures like Kevin Aviance in New York. I saw Angina on RuPaul's Drag Race. So to be beautiful and feminine and bald was possible in this queer world in a way that my mom didn't get to experience in the real life. People would look at her like there was something wrong. Um, so to get to kind of reinterpret my, my mom's look, yeah. this bald look, yeah. and a face that looks like hers, um, and have people say it's beautiful in, in this world uh, means so much to me because I, I feel like I'm advocating for her. Yeah. Maybe in a way she didn't fully experience you, you're taking before it, she died. You're taking it in for her too. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Funny. It is beautiful and it is profound. Uh, and so cool to hear Sasha talk about sort of the legacy of these women that she's keeping alive in her drag performances, her mom and also her grandmothers that you heard about earlier in that sort of early, early support when she was young. Uh, Sasha Valore's debut book, The Big Reveal, an illustrated manifesto of drag is out now. Coming up, you'll hear more of Tom Power's conversation with Sasha. She'll talk about her famous lip sync that won her the crown for season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race and about releasing her book at a time when the livelihood and honestly lives of drag performers are being threatened by anti-LGBTQ plus legislation in the world and especially in the United States. More with Sasha Velour coming up on Q. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You've been hearing Tom's conversation with Sasha Velour about her latest book. It's called The Big Reveal, an illustrated manifesto of drag. They've gone deep into the history of drag and Sasha's own life story. In this next half, they are going to pick up at a pretty significant time of Sasha's life when she won season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race. You were going against uh, season nine, right? Yeah. Season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going against Shea Coulee. The song was so emotional by Whitney Houston. You come out with this beautiful red wig, this beautiful dress. At the climax of the song, you pull off the wig and, and rose petals fall down. crowd goes wild. It became 
maybe the most defining moment of Drag Race up to that point, if not still. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, I think it was the first Drag Race moment that got parodied on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about that performance. What do you remember about it? What was going through your mind while you were doing it? How, how do you practice that? <laughs> I, I did practice it. They gave us a, two days with the songs, and I was determined to put together a, a story with the performance because that's what I always do when I perform in drag. And I wanted it to be about my mom a little bit. She she had always really idolized red hair, even though everyone in my family has brown hair. Um, so I, I put together this beautiful red wig and this kind of conservative dress. And I thought this is a story about someone who is trying to manage their emotions, but they just, as the lyrics suggest, they just get almost out of hand. And the chaos that they cause is beautiful as well as a little too much. So I thought this metaphor of the rose, a classic symbol of love, becomes something beyond a flower and becomes an explosion. It was magic. Like, I mean, quite literally, like it felt like I was watching a magic. It's, it's so sim- It's funny. It's so simple, but it's really like I, I, I go really hard when I perform. So it's like just the sheer force of of ripping the glove that quickly sends the petals in like an arc through the space and the same thing with the way I, I shook my wig. That's what like cascades them over the face. They're just stuffed up in there. <laughs> so, did you have any idea that it was going to have the impact that it did? Not any idea at all. I I wasn't sure if it would even work to be honest because I hadn't practiced it in makeup or with a sweaty head. I was worried I was going to be sweaty and it was uh, going to stick to my head. Yeah. And I I gave the whole performance just staring at RuPaul because she meant so much to me and I wanted to. I, I wanted to show her how much I can do on stage. Um, so my goal was to get her to react and to smile and to feel some some joy. And when I took the wig off, she her she got shocked. <laughs> <laughs> after you uh, after you win, um, um, there's a comic in the book that's like, um, is your manager asking you if you want to sell makeup <laughs> or do uh, or make a dance track? Which my, my understanding is that's that's what a lot of drag queens would do after yeah. after drag race. And you say in the comic something like, but I'm an artiste. <laughs> Poking fun at myself. What do you mean by that? <laughs> that's my internal voice. Thankfully, like everyone I've worked with understands what my, what my style is. No one's pushed me to do anything like that. But I have an internal voice that sometimes questions whether I should be pushing myself in more traditional ways, try, following a more classic celebrity path to try to advance my profile or whatever, have more opportunities like I see other people have. Uh, but... I guess for better or worse, there's this other voice of me that's like, you have to stay true to yourself. That's why you started doing drag is to celebrate the artistry, to develop a unique style and stay true true to it. Because you could have written a book about your own story. I don't think I honestly don't know if I could have because of this this sensibility of of how. Every time I started writing my own story, I, I got sidetracked by... By the context. I felt like it was incomplete without the context. I mean, but, and so much. I mean, I, I loved reading those parts of the book. I mean, you know, everything from, like, the indigenous history of drag to, the again, the, the social and political history of drag, the, the how we got to a place where we perceive drag as men dressing up as women, but what it actually is and how it, how we, it explores the non-binary nature of gender. Like, it was, it was really fascinating. Like, I guess um, 
I mean, basically, just why did you want to do more than that? Why did you want to tell more than just your own story? Why did you want to get into the, the history of, of the medium? It's complicated. And I feel like a lot of people avoid going there because of we. there isn't such a clear record of people's experiences. A lot of times with different language gaps, it's hard yeah. to know, like, was this drag? Was this trans expression? Was this just cross-dressing. And, 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 and sadly, too, I, I would yeah. imagine the lack of that that record-keeping would be based around shame or would be based around like that oh, society. Would, yeah, yeah, of course. And you know? the criminalization yeah. of you, all of forms of expression. I, yeah. I was really shocked learning how many colonial expansions around the world that obviously deprive people of land and freedom also, like, killed queer people or mm-hmm. expressions of queerness. They didn't even care what it was, whether it was authentic, whether it was dress-up performance. They just thought it was evil mm-hmm. kind of like what we're hearing now mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to connect to that history and try to do it carefully I had all this experience from my Fulbright talking about the pitfalls of translation so I felt like in some ways equipped to talk about these different experiences of drag and different experiences of queerness that are so similar but also just a little bit beyond what we can immediately claim as mm-hmm. the same and still build connection I want to talk more about that, and I want to talk more a little bit about perceptions of drag, um, including, I guess, the vehicle that you are incredibly grateful for that would have, you know, kind of really brought you to to where today, which is RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, you, you. Um, in a very respectful way, you write about RuPaul's Drag Race. You write, I once went to an academic lecture about drag where the speaker's only primary sources were episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. No offense, but we can't base our entire understanding of drag around one TV show. And, and it reminded me of this conversation I had, I think it was just the other day, right? With um, uh, Murray Hill. Oh, yes. An icon. Of Do you know Murray? Absolutely. We're good friends uh, in New York. I had a great chat with him. He, he, he kept on calling me <laughs> Mr. Tommy. Showbiz. Kept on calling me Tommy the I'm entire sure. interview. Going, Tommy, let me tell you something now. Tommy. You know, we had the best. We had the best chat. Um, and he he said a similar thing. He said, you know, um, uh, as a drag king, he hasn't seen the same level of representation. And he said, like, listen, the the the, the history of the medium goes. Medium, the art, the, the expression yeah. goes far beyond uh, drag race. Again, with no disrespect to drag race. Yeah. Why did you want to talk about that in the book? Oh, because it is so widespread. People are act like it is a a textbook of drag, but it's just it's just a celebration of it on a reality TV show. I think it's probably a reflection of the fact that it's so unavailable elsewhere. It's not a common part of school curriculum. It's not like it's not something you really see in a museum, particularly. So people gravitate. People love it, and they gravitate to what they can find. So I think it's our job to make it more available. I mean, and, and it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. And one of the main things I took from this book is, again, how I, I was under the impression, and, and I think even for a moment you were, again, 1970s, 1960s, it, you know, and, and then it blows up to the mainstream of RuPaul's Drag Race. And here we are. This is the pinnacle. And now, you know, like, again, that these things have all, that drag has always been around in, in, in for, I mean, centuries in different civilizations and under different names mm-hmm. forever. Yet here we are in, in 2023. And I think we, we should talk about it. You know, we are living in a time um, where more anti-drag legislation is being introduced. Uh, most notably, the government of Tennessee recently banned drag performances in front of the public or minors. This is one of the many laws Tennessee has passed that target, targets LGBTQ plus rights. I, if you're listening to this in Canada, I don't, I don't want you to think we're getting a break either. 
you you have massive protests yeah. still happening. We're seeing them all the time. We're seeing protests in, in particular in libraries. You know, in every single time I have someone on this show who who's a drag performer, uh, I can't. You know, the, even just me as like a, a, a cishet dude, the amount of hate I get, um, amplify that by like forty thousand. Um, is the experience of the people I get wow. to talk to. What do you hope this book's impact is at, at this time? It's an interesting time for the book to come out. Yeah, I hope people would share it with someone who is against drag. I'm curious. I'm kind of curious to find out what that experience will be like because I think a lot of us are very accepting and understand that to, to us, this backlash is completely ridiculous. Like to to want to tell someone dressed up making art that they're disgusting or a pervert makes no sense because like of all the, of all the things that we are, that's definitely not one of them. Um, this world is full of people who actually do prey upon innocent young people and take advantage. And those are people who are deeply protected by institutions. Often um, drag is a place of, that values consent very heavily. That is all about letting people have freedom over their own bodies and what happens to their bodies. So it's literally completely the opposite of of what the the backlash is is accusing drag of doing. So I hope some facts. I hope that personal stories from that I tell from yeah. history and from my own yeah. can be a kind of proof of what drag is and how healing and positive it can be in the world. I don't know if those people can be convinced, but a, a official record sometimes contributes to a gradual cultural shift. Does the backlash now feel like the backlash of, of before, of, of decades ago, of, of centuries ago? It's more specific, I think, because of the increased visibility for trans people. Yeah, I think yeah. Within the 20th century, the medical industry has really, maybe medical and medical discoveries have evolved more linearly than culture. Yeah. And there's an increased understanding of how many people experience dysphoria of what um, gender affirming care like medication and surgeries can do for someone's mental health. Yeah. So now it's, we kind of can't go back from there. We've seen that it can save people's lives yeah. um, and we have to make adjustments. But I think that gives drag a different dimension because we are so connected drag and the trans community. This is a stage for voicing all the different experiences that people in our community have, including the a real one of being trans what conversations are, are drag performers having with one another at this time? Some of us are a little scared. And I think we don't want to say that outwardly. Yeah. We, we want to say when it comes to giving advice to young people, like, don't be scared. Yeah. Be yourself. Go out there. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the, the weapons that people are showing up to drag events with, the threats of killing us yeah. are actually really hard to, like, sleep with at night or wake up with or go out and be yourself. And it's also such a disconnect because people don't really say that to our face. So it's things we get online. It's it's seeing someone at a distance or someone shouts something in passing. It's like, it's never quite real, but it's it's this looming threat. And that's so confusing. And we're also like exhausted defending our right to exist yeah. <laughs> when we've harmed no one. We've only helped people. So I think it's exhaustion and a little fear and then a commitment. We're like, okay, and let's get our talking points straight because we don't want to be <laughs> too depressed yeah, in course. front of the world. I, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, I feel like a lot of our conversation up to this point has revolved around like little hints, who I actually am. Dracula, 
Wicked Witch of the West, <laughs> Fulbright, conversations in the middle of the street in Russia, right. your mom, your dad. Oh, I'm getting a picture of who I really am. But we don't stop figuring out who we are at when we're in our 20s or when, you know, like there's no end to like, no. oh, all of a sudden I started performing drag. I'm done. How about writing this book? Like, do you feel like, can, can you speak to a way maybe you were changed just by writing this book? Yeah, I love that question. Because I think like the process of writing the book was piecing together all these, all these different parts, many of which I didn't think would go together at all. A lot of these stories I had never brought into my drag story because I'm like, that doesn't that doesn't fit with my vision of Sasha Velour and her fabulous alien self. Uh, but I see that it is all me. These real things that happened, the history, and and that the reality is I'm I'm still figuring out who I am. And that's all right. Like I get to do that in this big way um, and share it with my community and with people who are interested. And I, I hope I, I keep evolving. I, I in the end, I, I sketch out like an ideal future for myself, at least as I'm imagining it right now. And it's to become a grandma like I had, <laughs> like someone who has a wardrobe of clothes and lets the next generation play around in it and make it their own and make fun of the clothes and turn them into something else. And if I can do that with clothing or with ideas about gender or art or queer people, like that would be such a success. And just to be someone cheering people on. That's kind of my dream. It's a really wonderful book, and I really enjoy talking to you. Thanks for coming in. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Tom. Just over the course of that conversation, we heard about history, about politics, about social justice, freedom, family, identity, all explored through art. And that is what art is, man. There you go. That was Tom Power's conversation. With Sasha Velour, her debut book is called The Big Reveal, an illustrated manifesto of drag. It is out now. Sasha will be touring her live show, The Big Reveal, come this December with stops all over the U.S. and Europe. And you'll also be able to catch her soon as one of the co-hosts for season four of We're Here on HBO. I'm Talia sitting in for Tom Power, and the song that you're hearing won the artist Rev Dance Recording of the Year at this year's Juno Awards. Of course it did. Come on, this is a dance song if there ever was one. It's got over 96 million global streams. It was featured on Canada's Drag Race. Rev also won Breakthrough Artist Writer at this year's SoCan Awards. All of this was before her debut album, which just came out last week. It's called Saturn Return, and if you're into astrology, you probably know what that means. And if you don't, Rev is very good at explaining it. Here's our conversation. Rev, welcome to Q. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It must be really something to make a song like what we just heard. Like, that's a pure, it's a pure anthem. Thank you so much. Banks and Ranks and I made that song during the first wave of the pandemic when everything was closed when we were just dreaming about, you know, a, a world of the past where we could just go out and not for the girls and the guys, not for the drinks, but purely for the music. And it's taken us on such a wild ride ever since. Hmm. So we're going to talk about the the title song to your debut album, Saturn Return. What does that mean? So I want to give you a bit of a background on what a Saturn Return actually is, because okay. it's going to give the song a lot of context. Ready. 
So your Saturn return uh, occurs for the first time because it happens a couple of times in your life. But your Saturn return is an astrological event that occurs between the ages of 27 and 30 when all of the planets go back to the exact position in the sky as they were when you were born. And astrologers say that this, this time is marked by a lot of change, a lot of hard lessons, a lot of beautiful lessons um, that are meant to align you with the person that you are always meant to be. And so many people will mistake this in layman's terms as, you know, your quarter life crisis, your midlife crisis, your late life crisis, if you're lucky enough to grow old, because growing old is a privilege. Um, but so Saturn return um, really follows me through my Saturn return and the love, the loss, the trial, the tribula uh, tribulation, um, and just the beauty and really finding and coming into myself for the first time. It's poetic the way that you described it to imagine, you know, you're born, the planets are in a certain alignment, they go wherever they go, and then they, they come, they come back around your uh, website has this calculator that determines when people's Saturn return is supposed to be. And if Wikipedia has your birthday correct, is it March 2nd, 1996? Is that correct? It is. Okay. So you've still got a few more years until your Saturn return in 2025. How are you feeling about when that that time comes? I am excited because it's all about doing the shadow work before. Um, and there's a shadow period, they say, that are that occurs two years before your return, which I'm smack dab in the middle of, and two years after. But the intensity comes during that period. And I'm just gearing up for mine. And I'm doing, I'm doing all the work. I'm doing the therapy. And part of that therapy is writing music. Oh, interesting. Has it always been that way for you? Oh, yeah. Ever yeah. since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, when people were studying, I probably should have been studying harder uh, or playing sports. I was just, you know, processing my life at the piano every day after school. And nothing is, you know, hasn't really changed that much. You've said that the album uh, is your love letter to dance music and a snapshot of your soul. Can you tell me more about about what what dance music gives you? Let me tell you about the first time that I heard dance music on a proper sound system because it explains my love affair with it. I was in Montreal. Um, I grew up in Montreal, proud Montrealer. Um, and I remember going out to a club. I'd, I'd seen stadium shows before. I, I grew up in a really musical home, so concerts were a big part of our lifestyle, but they were arena shows and small venue shows. But I remember going into this nightclub, uh, which is a very intimate nightclub in the old part port of Montreal, uh, it's a very eclectic nightclub where it just kind of looks like a dungeon with, you know, a couple of lights. There's taxidermy in the walls. There's, you know, uh, candles dripping down the walls and there's a wicked, wicked sound system. So it was my first real DJ set that I'd ever experienced. And I remember walking in there and being in the middle of the crowd and experiencing something that I hadn't yet experienced at a show, which was just the connection that, you know, dance music the effect that dance music had on the people in the crowd themselves. We were just feeling united and connected and free and euphoric and it was transcendent. And I just, I was so addicted to that feeling that I knew going forward that I really wanted to refine my sound in such a way to recreate that experience for people. So we're about to listen to the title song, Saturn Return, that you just told us a bit about what should we listen out for uh, musically? What do you want to tell me about, about writing it? So Saturn Return, I uh, spoke a little bit about what that means, but this is, this is a track about coming home to Montreal after being away for a little while. 
And sitting in the fact that, you know, everything had changed since I had left, but finding comfort in the things that stayed the same. And I, I think that can be summed up in your Saturn return too, on a larger on a larger scale. Like you're still the same person when you come back to the, you know, when the planets realign to where they were when you were born. But you've learned so many lessons and you learn to appreciate the little things. So that's what the song is about. And sonically, one of my major inspirations in music is Robin. And yes. uh, she said it's Scandinavian pop perfection. It's she strikes the perfect balance between emotion and and just and something that makes you want to dance. And so you hear a lot of her influence in this track in particular. I think that you hear the most of her influence in, in this track in particular. Would you introduce it for us? This is Rev and you're listening to my title track, Saturn Return on CBC. Came back home for a little while Missed my city and my daddy's smile And I pick right up where I left off Same street, 18 with my heart on my cuff I take the old in with the new I'm glad that time's been good to you And somehow it feels like a sudden return As I fall through a door on a quiet street that was Saturn Return. That's the title track from Rev's new album, her debut. You can listen to it now wherever you get your music. And that's it for the show this week. Q is produced by Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Lise Hossein, Vanessa Nigro, Cora Nijawan, Gloria Amateo, Matt Murphy, and Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashat. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan. Our director is Mitch Pollock. Our engineer is Sam Hashimi. Our senior producer is Beza Seifa. And McKeegan is our executive producer. Tom Power is your host. I've been sitting in for him. I'm Talia Schlanger. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.